You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 7 from the According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity, a lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner. Lecture 7. To understand the full significance of the Christ event for human evolution, we must again mention a fact already familiar to those who attended the lectures on Luke. It is especially important to recall this fact today when we will merely outline the highlights of the Christ's appearance in broad strokes, though we will go into more detail in subsequent lectures. Even a sketchy account requires us to recall a fundamental law in human evolution. Human beings constantly acquire new faculties and evolve toward perfection. Even when looking at exoteric history, we see at least superficially that new human faculties were developed during the Christian era and resulted in our modern culture. Before any faculty becomes a universal human trait that anyone can acquire, it must appear first as an example somewhere on earth. In last year's lectures on Luke, for example, I pointed out the Eightfold Path, which is Gautama Buddha's contribution to human evolution. The stages of the Eightfold Path, generally referred to as right views, right judgment, right speech, right action, right standpoint, right habits, right memory, and right contemplation, are specific capacities of the human soul. The evolution of human nature since the Buddha's time has enabled people to gradually develop the inner faculties of the Eightfold Path in a way that was not possible before his incarnation as the Buddha. The incarnation of this exalted being provided the impetus for human beings to develop these faculties through individual effort on the physical plane, a process that will take hundreds and thousands of years. As I mentioned in the lectures on Luke, it is now possible for large numbers of individuals to develop these faculties, and when enough people have done so, the earth will be ready to receive the next Buddha, the Maitreya Buddha, who is now a Bodhisattva. These two Buddhas frame the development of the higher intellectual, moral, and emotional faculties within the Eightfold Path. But this had to be initiated by one who was exceptionally exalted. In a unique occurrence, one human being encompassed all of these faculties in the personality of Gautama Buddha, thus making it possible for everyone since then to acquire them. A law of human evolution states that new faculties fully manifest first in a single individual and gradually become available to all of humankind through a process that may take thousands of years. The impulse that Gautama Buddha introduced to Let me read that again. The impulse that Gautama Buddha introduced will take about 5,000 years to reach fruition. 
the Christ being introduced a similar but infinitely greater impulse, which will manifest increasingly throughout the rest of earthly evolution. This can be described as follows. Something that was available only to those in the ancient pre-Christian mysteries has become an increasingly universal human potential since the Christ's appearance. To understand how this happened, we must clearly understand the character of the ancient mysteries and of pre-Christian initiation. In post-Atlantean times, initiation varied among the different peoples on earth. No ethnic or geographic group experienced the totality of initiation, but each cultivated a different aspect. With our knowledge of reincarnation, we can easily understand why it was unnecessary for each group to experience the entire scope of initiation. Souls who underwent a particular aspect of initiation, as cultivated by the people of their birth, were not restricted to incarnating in this particular group. By reincarnating into various groups, they experienced additional aspects of initiation. The essence of initiation is that it allows people to see into the spiritual world, a view not available through sensory perception or reason which depend on the physical body. In everyday life, we all have two opportunities in each 24-hour period to enter states known to initiates but unknown to ordinary people. We all spend part of each day awake and part asleep. This alternation has been described thoroughly in anthroposophical groups, so I am sure you know that the astral body and I separate from the physical and etheric bodies during sleep. The astral body and I expand into the universe and extract from it the forces we need in daily life. Ordinary people remain unaware of this expansion into the universe since their consciousness is extinguished when the astral body and I leave the lower bodies. Initiation involves learning to remain conscious during this expansion while participating consciously in the life of heavenly bodies related to the earth. This is the essence of initiation into the macrocosm. Without sufficient preparation, the immense impact of perceiving the world in which we live during sleep would affect us though we were looking as though we were looking at the sun with unprotected eyes. We would be blinded by the cosmos, and our souls would perish. All initiation is based on strengthening our organs to survive the impact of entering the macrocosm. One aspect of initiation involves learning to live in the world where we spend the night, a world we usually know nothing about. Initiation illumines this world and makes it perceptible to initiates. If we enter the macrocosm unprepared, it blinds and confuses us because we are accustomed to the very different circumstances of the sensory world. Here we develop the habit of perceiving from only one perspective, which shapes all our opinions. And when we encounter something that does not coincide exactly with our opinions, we assume it is false. On the physical plane, it is comfortable and useful to think that everything must conform to our own narrow perspective, but this view is not useful for navigating the macrocosm we enter through initiation. In the sensory world, we judge all circumstances from a snail's perspective, because our experience of self is concentrated into a single point. As far as we are concerned, anything that coincides with our views is true 
and anything that does not is false. When we undergo initiation, however, we move out into the macrocosm. If we were to move in only one direction, we would remain unaware of everything that lies in other directions, but in fact we expand in all possible directions and can no longer maintain a single perspective. We must still be able to view the world as well as ourselves as if from a single point, but we must also be able to assume second and third perspectives. In other words, we must develop a flexible point of view and see things from all sides. Of course, this does not mean that we need to develop the infinite variety of perspectives that are theoretically possible. In actuality, twelve perspectives are sufficient for human purposes. In the mystery schools, the twelve constellations of the zodiac represent these twelve perspectives. Rather than moving only in the direction of cancer, for instance, we must truly see the world from twelve different perspectives. There is no point in trying to use abstract, rational language to harmonize these different perspectives. We must learn to see the world from different sides before looking for harmony in these views. Incidentally, in any worldview based on esoteric truths, the natural human tendency to retain everyday habits becomes a real stumbling block. Whenever we need to communicate truths attainable through suprasensory research, Multiple perspectives are needed, even if we are speaking in exoteric terms. As attentive followers of our own esoteric movement over the years, you know that we always try to avoid one-sided descriptions by presenting a variety of perspectives. But things appear different from different sides, of course, so those who choose to base all their judgments on common practice in the physical world will occasionally discover contradictions in our material. One of the first principles of any spiritual scientific movement is that whenever information seems to differ from what was said at another time, the difference is probably caused by a shift in perspective. To prevent an unjust spirit of contradiction from prevailing among us, we make a point of approaching the same subject from various perspectives. For example, a lecture cycle last year in Munich, the East in the Light of the West, described the secrets of the universe from the perspective of Eastern philosophy. It is essential to develop flexible perspectives before entering the macrocosm by the path described here. Those who fail to do so will find themselves in a labyrinth. It is indeed true that human beings can orient themselves according to the cosmos, but the cosmos does not adjust to accommodate human beings. If we attempt to move outward with a fixed perspective, we will find that the universe moves on and we fall behind as the situation evolves. For example, to use the images of the starry script, if we move outward believing that we are heading for Aries, but the universe moves on and presents us with the constellation Pisces instead, we will interpret what comes from Pisces as an Aries experience and the result will be confusion. Finding our way around the labyrinth of the macrocosm requires twelve different viewpoints. Expansion into the macrocosm is one way of entering the divine spiritual world, but once every twenty-four hours we also enter it in a different way, though most people remain unaware of this event. When we wake up we descend into our physical and etheric bodies, but we perceive nothing of them because our perception is immediately directed into the outer world. When we, 
what we perceive would be very different if we descended consciously into our physical and etheric bodies. The state we call sleep prevents us from consciously entering the macrocosm unprepared. Similarly, the fact that perception is diverted into the outer world prevents us from consciously entering our physical and etheric bodies. But the danger we face when descending unprepared into our lower members is different from the cosmic bewilderment that occurs when we expand unprepared into the macrocosm. When we are inadequately prepared to enter and identify with our physical and etheric natures, we experience an intensification of their purpose, which is to allow us to develop I, capital, consciousness. When our I enters the world of the physical and etheric bodies unprepared without having been purified, the mystic perception that occurs excludes inner truth and presents us with deceptive images. When our, <clears throat> when our eyes are opened to our own inner nature, we are bound to all of our egoistic desires, compulsions and shortcomings. In everyday life we are not tied to these negative aspects of selfhood because our attention is distracted by the outer world, which overshadows what can develop in our own inner nature. As I have mentioned elsewhere, Christian martyrs and saints experienced these same temptations when they immersed themselves in their own inner nature, and their descriptions coincide with the realities of becoming conscious in this way. Studying the lives of saints is extremely instructive. In addition to revealing what we spared in normal life, let me read that again. In addition to re revealing what we are spared in normal life by turning our gaze outward, their biographies also show how all these inner passions, emotions, and urges work. When we descend into our own inner nature, the I experience intensifies and concentrates in a single point. In this point we encounter the negative inner aspects that try to overwhelm the I. The dominant mood in this state is a desire to satisfy our own wishes and to exist only as an I. If we are inadequately prepared, we risk being blinded when we, attempted, when we attempt to expand into the cosmos, but we risk being compressed into the I when we immerse ourselves in our own physical and etheric bodies. The two processes of consciously falling asleep and consciously waking correspond to initiation practices in different parts of the world. The Aryan and Nordic peoples cultivated the capacity of expanding into the macrocosm, while Egyptian initiation taught human beings to recognize the activities of the divine within their own bodily nature. In the heyday of the ancient mysteries, Humanity as a whole had not yet evolved to a point that permitted independent individual initiation, whether into the macrocosm or into the microcosm of inner human nature. For example, in Egypt, when candidates were guided to consciously descend into the forces of the physical and etheric bodies, terrible passions and emotions inevitably spewed forth on all sides from within their astral nature. The demonic worlds that emerged had to be absorbed and deflected by the Hierophant's twelve helpers. Because these helpers were essential to the process, individuals were never completely free during ancient rites of initiation. Similarly, in the Nordic mysteries, the initiator's twelve servants made it possible for candidates to expand into the cosmos. 
they supplied the forces that allowed the candidate to develop the capacities for thinking and feeling needed for finding a way through the labyrinth of the macrocosm. Initiation that depends completely on helpers to deflect inner demons must gradually give way to a new independent kind of initiation in which a mentor merely points out the necessary steps while the candidate proceeds independently. At present humankind has not yet made much progress in this direction, but individuals will eventually learn to ascend into the macrocosm and descend into the microcosm independently, that is, to experience both aspects of initiation in freedom. The Christ event occurred to make this new initiation possible. For human beings, the Christ's appearance signals the beginning of independent descent into the physical and etheric bodies and ascent into the macrocosm. These processes had to be demonstrated only once by the very exalted being of Christ Jesus. Essentially, the omnipotent being of the Christ had to appear on earth to model this new form of initiation which a sufficient number of human beings will be able to achieve as earthly progress, as earthly evolution progresses and matures. What did the Christ's appearance entail? First, the physical and etheric bodies of a human being had to be sanctified so that the being of the Christ could enter them. The impulse provided by this unique event in human evolution made it possible for anyone to learn to descend consciously and independently into the physical and etheric bodies. The Christ's descent to earth accomplished something that had never happened before, not even in the ancient mysteries. Formerly, the helper's activity had enabled candidates for initiation to descend into the mysteries of the physical and etheric bodies and to ascend into the mysteries of the macrocosm, but only by leaving the physical body. On returning to the physical body, they remembered their experiences in spiritual spheres, but they were unable to bring those experiences back into the physical body. This situation was radically changed by the Christ event. For the first time, physical and etheric human nature could experience complete permeation by the eye. Before the Christ appeared on earth, it had never been possible for the eye to completely penetrate the physical and etheric bodies. This being, infinitely superior to humankind yet so intimately united with human nature, also flowed unassisted into the macrocosm. Here, too, only the example set by the Christ made it possible for human beings to gradually accomplish this aspect of initiation independently. How do these two pillars of modern initiation appear in Luke and Matthew? We learned that Zarathustra, the great teacher of Asia in early post-Atlantean times who later incarnated as Zarathas or Nazarathos, also incarnated in the Jesus of the Solomonic branch of the house of David. As you know, working on the physical and etheric bodies develops human capacities and for twelve years the being of Zarathustra lived in the Jesus of Matthew, cultivating every possible faculty in the physical and etheric instruments of a scion of the house of Solomon. At the end of twelve years, Zarathustra transferred from this Jesus to Luke's Jesus, who was descended from the Nathanic branch of the house of David and was raised in Nazareth, 
not far from the Solomonic Jesus. This transfer is described in Luke's Gospel when Jesus' parents discovered him in the temple in Jerusalem after having become separated from him during the festivities. The Solomonic Jesus died shortly afterward, but Zarathustra continued to inhabit Luke's Jesus until his thirtieth year, acquiring all the faculties that could result from combining the specially prepared Solomonic physical and etheric bodies with the astral body and eye vehicle of Luke's Jesus. Eventually these faculties enabled Zarathustra to perform his third great sacrifice. Having previously donated his astral and etheric bodies to Hermes and Moses, Zarathustra would now sacrifice his physical body. His being abandoned the physical body along with the etheric and astral bodies within it. Then the Christ, the unique being and source of the important wisdom of all great teachers, accepted the vehicle abandoned by Zarathustra and occupied it for three years. The Gospels describe this event as Jesus' baptism by John in the river Jordan, which we will describe in greater detail later. Matthew points to the all-encompassing grandeur of what happened at the baptism. Quote, this is my beloved Son, in whom I encounter my own self, unquote, which should not be translated in the trivial words, quote, with whom I am well pleased, unquote, Matthew 3.17. In older manuscripts of the Gospels, this passage reads, quote, Thou art my beloved Son, today have I begotten thee. Unquote. This translation makes it clear that a birth occurred during the baptism in the Jordan, the birth of the Christ into the bodily garments just prepared, first prepared, and then sacrificed by Zarathustra. These three garments were, quote unquote, reborn in the sense that they were imbued with the spiritual substance of the Christ. Thus the baptism by John was both the rebirth of the garments shaped by Zarathustra and the birth of the Christ on earth. The Christ appeared on earth in an ordinary but uniquely perfected human body. After the baptism, the Christ, the most exalted being ever connected to the earth, inhabited the members of a human constitution. He had to exemplify complete initiation by descending into the physical and etheric bodies and by ascending into the macrocosm. The Christ modeled both of these processes for human beings. As with all events related to the Christ, we must understand that when he descended into the physical and etheric bodies, he was immune to all the related dangers. All attacks simply bounced off him, as it were. We must also realize that he could not be touched by the dangers that human beings encounter by expanding into the macrocosm. Matthew recounts the temptations during Christ's descent into the physical and etheric bodies after the baptism in the Jordan, Matthew 4, 1-11. The temptation in the desert is a detailed reflection of the conscious human descent into the physical and etheric bodies. The Christ descended and endured a concentration of the eye in order to demonstrate this process and show us what we can expect. We are told that by recalling the Christ and becoming Christ-like, we receive the strength we need to meet and overcome the temptations that flow from the physical and etheric bodies. Thus the first remarkable scene in Matthew, the temptation of Christ, 
depicts one aspect of initiation, the descent into the physical and etheric bodies. This gospel also illustrates the other aspect of initiation, expansion into the macrocosm, by showing how the Christ experienced this process through his own sensory human nature. Here I would like to bring up an obvious argument that we will deal with thoroughly in the next few days. For now, however, we will deal only with its main point. The objection goes, if the Christ was such an exalted being, why did he have to experience the initiations of descent and ascent in a human fashion? In fact, this was necessary not for his own sake, but for the sake of human beings. Christ-like beings had undergone these processes before in the spiritual substance of higher spheres, but never in human physical and etheric bodies. No human being had ever been permeated by the Christ being. Divine substance had expanded into space, but human substance had not. <clears throat> Only a God inhabiting human nature could take human substance and pour it into space, and pour it out into space. Matthew also establishes the second pillar of initiation, expansion into the macrocosm of the sun and stars, by describing how the Christ accomplished this aspect of initiation through human nature. First he was anointed with oil, as anyone would have been, to purify him and safeguard him from anything that might approach from the physical world. Matthew 26, 6-13 In the ancient mysteries, anointing had always taken place in the temple, and now it reappeared on a higher level and as an historical event. Next, we see how the Christ relinquished a self-bound perspective and spoke of his expansion into the entire world. At the Last Supper, when he said, quote, This is my body, unquote, and, quote, This is my blood, he conveyed to those around him that he felt present in the solid and fluid elements of the entire earth. Matthew 26, 26-29 The Last Supper portrays the Christ's conscious expansion into the macrocosm, which parallels our own unconscious expansion during sleep. What we feel in that moment of imminent blinding is expressed in the monumental words, quote, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, unquote, Matthew 26.38. Christ, Christ Jesus truly underwent the death, paralysis, and blinding that occurs when we confront the macrocosm. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced the unique anguish of the physical body as it is forsaken by the soul expanding into the cosmos, Matthew 26.36-46. The crucifixion, burial, and subsequent events all represent stages in the mystery of expansion into the cosmos, the other pillar of Matthew. Freed from the confines of the physical body, which was eventually hung on the cross, the Christ expanded into the entire cosmos. Those who sought him would no longer be able to find him in the physical body. They would have to seek clairvoyantly in the spirit that pervades space. The Christ was mocked, by saying that he would pull down the temple and rebuild it in three days, a clear reference to the three and a half days required for macrocosmic initiation in the mysteries, Matthew 26:61. He then said, quote, From now on, you must seek the being born out of human evolution 
at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds, unquote, indicating that he could no longer be found in the physical nature of Jesus, but must be sought in the spirit that pervades the cosmos. Even in feeble modern translations, the majesty of this statement is apparent, Matthew 26.64. We must seek the Christ who was poured out into the cosmos as an example of the great initiation we experience when leaving the body and expanding into the macrocosm. We have now considered the whole earthly life of the Christ, which began with his birth into the body of the baptism, excuse me, which began with his birth into the body at the baptism in the Jordan. It begins with one aspect of initiation, the descent into the physical and etheric bodies in the story of the temptation and ends with the initiation of expansion into the macrocosm from the Last Supper through the flogging, the crowning with thorns, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. These two pillars of initiation frame our brief sketch of the events of Matthew's Gospel. In the next few lectures, we will fill in these outlines with more details. The end of Lecture 7